Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. When I got up this morning and saw that mountain and what the day was going to be like, I thought, oh, good. It'll be me and Becky, my wife, and Amanda, our daughter, and our two grandchildren, Sam and Kate. And the rest of you are going to be out having fun on the mountain. So uh, I'm grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with us, uh, to be here to worship together, and uh, to hear a substitute pinch hitter for our pastor, Brian. Brian and his family are taking a well-deserved vacation, uh, but I don't think they could have any more beautiful view out their window than we've got here today. So we're glad that you're here. And to celebrate a new year, the start of a new year. So I suppose that means for all of us, you're filled up with your New Year's resolutions by now. I did a little bit of reading about this this week. Do you know that Uh, Researchers say that 92% of resolutions fail. So this is your encouraging news for the day. And by the way, if you're like me, for those who are over 50, it's even worse. So what I will say today to you is uh, I wish you the best with your New Year's resolutions. Um, And thinking of the New Year here at our church, um, if you've been here recently... Let's see if this trigger works. Oh, you have to turn it on. There we go. You've heard Brian talk about a theme for 2018 that the Lord's been speaking to him about, and the theme is called Listened Up. Listen Up. Uh, what he's been encouraging us about and that he'll be talking with us about when he returns is to be listening for God's voice. God's voice about our own lives, our families, and our church and this community and what God's plans are for this place. So listen up is the message. And that prompts the question, of course, for all of us, well, how do you do this? How do you listen for God's voice in your life? And that's what Brian has asked me and Todd Meredith next week to spend a little bit of time talking with you about, uh, about some of our own experiences, which hopefully will be an encouragement for you as well, uh, to listen up for God's teaching. Um, now, we're not skilled preachers, definitely. We barely are decent speakers, so if you'll just cut us some slack and bear with me, I'd like to share with you some things that I hope will be an encouragement to you. Brian says, you got to have a big idea. I think this is a TED talk kind of thing. You know, you need a big idea. So this is the best I can do, folks. The big idea that I want to talk with you about today is that God does speak to us. His Holy Spirit speaks to us through His Word, the Bible, if we listen. So that's the big idea for the day today, that if you're wondering what God has to say to you, the Bible is a place to go to find out, if we listen when we read his word. So that's the big idea. God speaks to us. Now, um, it prompts a question for me about uh, my perspective on the Bible, because I'm not 100% sure that at all times I expect God to speak to me when I read the Bible. I do know that at times He speaks to me. But much of the time, I confess, when I read the Bible, I'm reading it more like a book than God's Word. 
And so I shouldn't be surprised if I don't really hear a message clearly. So my big question is, do I need a fresh perspective about the Bible as I begin this new year? Do I need to resolve that I'm going to have a fresh look at this book? Now, the Bible, I know that uh, many of you here read it often. If you're like me, you probably have specific places you go that you know fairly well. If you're like me, you also have places that you never go. Um, I look back in the Old Testament, which I confess I don't read as often. And I looked at Amos and Obadiah, and you know what? I don't have a single underlined note there. I don't have anything I've written in the margins. And then there's Leviticus. All those who've read Leviticus lately, raise your hand. Um, you know, that's a notorious book for being difficult. It's full of all kinds of rules and regulations, things that are good admonitions, I suppose, but it's a hard book to read. So sometimes, parts of the Bible especially, uh, I need to have a new perspective about. And you know what else? It's so familiar to us. Um, there are three billion copies of the Bible in print. You, pr- you may have more than one in your own home. So gaining a fresh perspective on something that is so familiar is also a bit of a challenge. Brian suggested something to me. He said, here's a verse that you can use um, to kind of anchor the message. And it is, the main message in this is that all scripture is God-breathed. I'm going to read it to you. It's in 2 Timothy verses three, in chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. This is a uh, book in the Bible that was a letter written by Paul to Timothy. And uh, you may know that Timothy was very dear to Paul. They traveled together. Paul was a mentor for Timothy. He referred to him as um, my true son in faith. And Paul had left Timothy in charge of a church in Ephesus that Paul founded when he was there. So Timothy's the younger mentee. Uh, And um, here's Paul. He's in prison in Rome for the second time. Uh, He's suspicious that this time might be his last. And he was right. He was killed by the Roman government um, just shortly after having written this message. So in that context, I hope you can see that he's writing to Timothy to tell him some things that he, Paul, thinks are really important. So here's verses 14 through 17 of chapter 3. But as for you, that is, as for Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul is reminding Timothy, and he's reminding us, that all scripture is useful, is God-breathed. He's giving Tim, Timothy, a fresh perspective. He says, you, you know these scriptures, this would have been referring to the Old Testament, You know these scriptures, you've been taught them from birth. But I think part of what Paul is trying to do here is to say, get a new perspective. Realize that these scriptures are God-breathed. That means 
that they're alive with God's breath. And um, it kind of reminds me of that, of that old hymn some of us might remember. Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew. When the Bible talks about the breath of God, it's in the context of bringing life. The Bible is alive with God's breath. Do you expect to hear God's breath when you read? I know I'm guilty at times of not. So if we're going to listen up to hear it, we need to ask ourselves, what's our current perspective? How do we view the Bible today? And how do we begin to see it in the year ahead as not just 66 books written by 40 different authors, but a new and fresh perspective. So I want to ask you to think about your current perspective. Maybe you've been reading the Bible your whole life, and maybe you're uh, absolutely overwhelmed with it at times, and other times it's kind of dry. Nothing speaks. Maybe you see the Bible as an ancient historic document. 3,000 years ago, parts of it were written. How can it possibly be relevant today to me here in Big Sky, you might really not know what to make of the Bible. So no matter what your perspective might be, I want to encourage you to think about a fresh and new one this year. Making a resolution on that and hopefully one we can keep together. This morning what I'd like to do is to share an experience that Becky and I and some friends got to have this past year that I would say absolutely gave me a fresh perspective on the Bible. I know it did for Becky as well. Uh, we were invited to go to, to Israel with a small group of people, and quite frankly, um, some here might think this is kind of crazy that I would think this, but I honestly thought, you know what? I don't think I need to go to Israel. I don't think I need to see all that ancient stuff. I have been a believer in Jesus Christ as my Savior since I was 15 years old. I have never doubted that he was real, that he was that he walked among us. And I thought over the years, I don't really know that it's high on my list, my bucket list, to go there and see those places. I don't think I need that. A friend of mine, however, a friend of Becky and I's, said, if you go, you will never read the Bible again the same. And we had that kind of nudge of encouragement from him and some other friends, and so we went. And I can assure you that um, it did change our perspective about the Bible. And we don't read it. I don't read it the same now as I did before. So I'm going to try today to give you a quick overview on some of what we saw in Israel that helped give a new perspective. And then after we do kind of a fast forward through several slides, I'm going to talk about three main things that stood out to me. Uh, as a new way to think about the Bible. By the way, we took over 2,000 photographs, so pay attention. <laughs> it's more like a movie. Uh, actually, I've, I've picked the 1% for you here. Um, so just a quick trip of uh, the itinerary. Uh, one of the first places we visited on day two was uh, Caesarea. This is a port city on the Mediterranean in Israel that was built by... Herod the Great, you remember Herod the Great? As our guide said, he's the Herod you all love to hate. Um, Herod the Great was a builder. 
and uh, he built the, the port city of Caesarea. That what you're seeing there is a freshwater swimming pool that was in the lower level of his palace. His palace stood above this. It's on the ocean. Where did the fresh water come from? 13 miles away on Mount Carmel by an aqueduct. The aqueduct is still there. So among the other wonderful things Herod had was a freshwater swimming pool. In Caesarea, this is a hard slide to see, but you see that red arrow? It's pointing at a little pile of stone. It's a little pier. This is the port of Caesarea. Of course, it hasn't been dredged for centuries, so it's filled now with dirt. But this is where the boats docked. And that stone and that little port have been there for over 2,000 years. It's very likely that Paul might have stood on that spot, stepped into a boat, and gone on a missionary journey. Here's the headwaters of the Jordan River. By the way, the Jordan River might not be what you think it is. It's about the size of the West Fork of the Gallatin here. It's about that size. It's a small river. This is the main tributary. This is the Dan. This is the most beautiful spot in all of Israel. Here you can see, get the sense of uh, uh, you know, a garden flowing with milk and honey. Right next to the Dan, this is northern Israel now, is um, this altar built by Jeroboam 920 B.C. Jeroboam was the king of that part of Israel. It was trying to keep the Israelites, the Israeli people, focused on the real God. And it was not an easy task because if you walk 15 minutes from this spot to a different spot, it was an a, a, a idol worship area with caves and uh, monuments carved into it that's been there for 2,000 years before this. So the people of Israel, trying to follow the real God, were surrounded by idol worship. Jeroboam built an altar to try to get them focused on the real place. He, we also visited the Sea of Galilee, of course. Now, the Sea of Galilee um, is the only freshwater lake. They call it a sea because um, in Hebrew language there's no word for lake. They use the word sea. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is the, the only freshwater lake in Israel, fed by the Jordan River. It's about three times the size of Hebgen Lake, so it's not a huge lake. But it's long enough that when the wind comes up, you can have a good storm. Becky and I had an opportunity to, to travel by boat on the Sea of Galilee. Speaking of boats, here's a 2,000-year-old fishing boat. It was covered in mud very near Capernaum for centuries. That's what preserved it. So this boat, they know by using carbon dating that uh, it's more than 2,000 years old. It is exactly what the fishermen in Capernaum, uh, people like Peter and Jesus, may have used. It would have been a boat similar to this. Not very big. Here's the River Jordan, a baptismal site. Didn't look like that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. It's a very popular site now, and we were privileged to have nine of our group baptized there. It was an awesome experience. We visited Qumran. Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. That opening that you can barely see. Let's see, I've got a little pointer thing here somewhere. The opening right there is where the majority of the scrolls were found, actually. Thousands of years old, 
an entire copy of the book of Isaiah was among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And of course we visited Jerusalem. So here we are uh, overlooking the famous view of the Dome of the Rock. Uh, Larry, my brother, was with us. It was a great visit. What did we see there? Well, of course, we saw the Western Wall. The Western Wall, one of the most holy sites in all of Judaism, and it's a holy site for Christians as well. This is really a retaining wall. What you're seeing here, all of this, was the retaining wall for the Temple Mount. On top of that was the Temple These stones were unbelievable in scale, some of them bigger than a city bus, one solid piece of stone. We have no idea how they built this. In that regard, it's like the uh, Egyptian pyramids. How did they do this? Right next to the Western Wall where they worship is this. See these stones? This is a pile of rubble. How did it get there? It's been there since 70 AD. These are the stones from which King Solomon's temple was built. And when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, they pushed these stones over the edge of the Western Wall, and here they are. Haven't been moved since. We, of course... Uh, visited the Temple Mount. These steps are bedrock steps carved into stone, solid stone. So when you stand there, you know that your feet are standing where for centuries worshipers have traveled, including Jesus. We can't be sure he walked in that exact spot, but we know he used these steps. And of course, we visited the Garden Tomb. Um, There are two locations which they believe may have been where Jesus' body was buried. But it's a very solemn location. And there's lots of reason to believe that one of the two they've indicated, uh, in fact, may have been the borrowed tomb that Jesus' body was buried in. So that's the quick trip. How are we doing? I've got 12 minutes. So I'd like to share with you three perspectives that kind of stand out to me in terms of what we saw and how it changed how we view the Bible, how I view the Bible. The first has to do with Elijah. Remember Elijah? Maybe you don't if you're like me. You have a short memory. Um, Elijah, and this is a modern statue erected of Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel. You read about Mount Carmel and what happened here in 1 Kings 18. We don't, I won't take time to read it. But you re, may recall that this is where the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, were challenged by Elijah to prove whose God is real. The God that Elijah followed or the multiple gods, including Baal, that those 450 prophets uh, followed. And they were gathering followers among the Israelites those who were supposed to follow the real God. So God spoke to Elijah and said, I want you to hold a contest. I want you to invite the 450 prophets of Baal, have them build an altar, and you build an altar. And you put a slaughtered animal on the two altars. And then you call upon your God to light the altar. 
The prophets of Baal, it's a funny story actually to read because they sort of get mocked by Elijah. Speak louder, maybe your gods are sleeping, he says. Well, for an entire day, they try to call down on their god to light the altar. And then, Elijah does something crazy. He has water poured all over his uh, sacrifice. And um, you know the rest of the story. God lights the altar. Fire comes down from heaven. Maybe a thunderstorm, maybe lightning, lighting the altar on fire. Well, so here's the question. When you read that story, where would you think you would stage this event? You know, there's no internet, there's no television, you want to get notoriety. Where would you stage it? Well, you would stage it someplace where everyone could see. When you stand on the top of Mount Carmel, which is the perspective this is taken from, you're in one of the highest points in all of Israel. And Israel is not very big, by the way. It's about the size of Gallatin County and Madison County combined. At this location, it's only about 25 miles wide from the east to the west. So whether you were a person watching what happened on top of Mount Carmel from the Mediterranean near Caesarea, or if you were over in the Valley of Armageddon, which is what we call this valley right here, it's now called the Jazeel Valley, not the Valley of Armageddon, um, you could see what was happening on top of Mount Carmel. My point is, things happen in certain places for a reason. God's a strategic thinker. I'm going to stage a contest. I want people to see the results. Word travels rapidly in these small communities. They could see what happened on top of Mount Carmel. We also, one of our favorite stops is in Capernaum. You know Capernaum. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus began his adult ministry. It's not far from his, uh, where he grew up. Um, half a day's walk, you can be there. So as an adult, he began his ministry here. Uh, it's a fishing village. It was a very prominent fishing village. Um, Capernaum, and here we are with our friends sitting under an olive tree. This is the group we traveled with. And right behind them, you can see a synagogue. Jesus taught on this site. John 6 records the first time that he speaks here. Now what you're seeing, the upper part of this is actually from the 4th century. So the synagogue was reconstructed. But underneath it, the entire foundation is more than 2,000 years old, 2,500 years old. This is the synagogue, the exact location where Jesus spoke. Right next to this synagogue are the foundations out of stone of the homes of the villagers, the fishermen who lived here. By the way, a carpenter in that era probably was more stonemason than carpenter. There was, there's not much wood in Israel. It's such a dry place. It was a rugged life. And this exact location, they know since roughly 2,000 years ago, was used as a worship site in a home because of the way it's constructed. Archaeologists can solve these puzzles that you and I can't. So there are a lot of people who think this is very likely where Peter lived. Um, when you stand in a location like this and you see the environment that people 
grew up in, worked in, lived in, taught in. Um, it changes how you see those people. Jesus would have been, he was a carpenter, stonemason, an extremely strong person. His hands could crush your hands. You know, the no power equipment, right? Everything is done by hand. He would have had strong, calloused hands. The followers who were following him began to uh, take note of what he had to say. Word travels quickly in this small area. It's not that far to Jerusalem. Jesus knew, you can read about it in John chapter 7, that he was in danger. So for a while, he didn't wander too far from Capernaum. His time wasn't ready, he said. The, uh, so that's two perspective changes. I guess I didn't recap them for you. One was things happen in the Bible at a specific place for a reason. Top of Mount Carmel. Second, the environment that they grew up in and that Jesus grew up in helps you see them as real, strong human beings eking out a living by fishing. The third thing has to do with the city of David. Uh, the city of David, founded by David, King David, in 1000 B.C., so 3,000 years ago, the city was founded. Um, and in nine, 700 B.C., uh, 700 years before Christ, there was a king, Hezekiah. Now, if you're an expert on Hezekiah, good for you. I pretty much ignored Hezekiah when I've read the Bible in the past. But you can read about him. He was the 14th king of Judah. He, uh, you read this story in 2 Kings. Um, Jerusalem's under siege again. It's under siege throughout its entire history, even today, right? Um, it's been uh, under siege, captured and recaptured a total of 44 times. And uh, twice the entire city has been destroyed. So... Um, at this moment, when King Hezekiah is leading the people, they're under siege again from the Assyrians. So um, what do you do when your city is going to be under siege for weeks, months, maybe even years? One of the things you do is protect the fresh water that uh, your followers, your people, have to drink. And one of the challenges in Jerusalem is it's in a desert, and there's one main spring. It's the Gihon Spring. Um, so what did Hezekiah do? He dug a deep tunnel in the bedrock so that he could keep the source of the spring and the pool that it formed at the end inside the city's walls, inside those big, strong walls. This was quite an experience. This is, you can't quite see it, but that's Becky right there, going down hundreds of feet below ground in solid bedrock. This is not nice sandy soil. This is solid bedrock. Um, and you can walk through the tunnel that carries the Gihon Spring that Hezekiah built. They did this, of course, completely manually. No power tools. It's 1,748 feet long. It takes you almost an hour to walk through it. Parts of it are quite low. It's always narrow, as you can see. Um, the Gihon Spring still runs in the bottom of this tunnel. So at times you're in water that's up to about here, 
not too much of that. It starts to get you a little nervous. Here you are going, I don't know how deep it's going to get. It's pitch black, by the way, so you need a headlamp or flashlight. And at times it's only ankle deep. But when you exit into the bright sunlight, you're at the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam, that's where Jesus told the blind man that he'd put... Remember, he spit on the dirt, he put the dirt on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash your eyes in the Pool of Siloam and your sight will be restored. And that is exactly what happened. And here we are standing at the Pool of Siloam, which is also filled with dirt in most parts. But this can't help but change you when you think about um, what it took to survive during that era. And when now when I read in Second Kings that it's a very short part of the Bible there that Hezekiah dug a tunnel to contain the Gihon Spring. I'm not even sure I cared about that before, but when you see how difficult, uh, it's, it changes a perspective. I'm behind in my notes. Excuse me. So are you going to Israel next two weeks? <laughs> Probably not. But if you get a chance to go, absolutely don't be like me. You should go. It will change you. Uh, one of the people who was on the trip said, you know, I used to read the Bible in black and white, and now I read it in high-definition color. And there's some truth to that. A new and fresh experience can change you. So just like... Paul's letter to Timothy tried to change Timothy's view. All scripture is God-breathed. God's trying to do that to all of us right now. Two things I think we can do. The first suggestion I'd have, and and again, go to Israel if you can. Uh, See Becky or me if if you're interested in that. the first is to make a commitment to read the Bible with a new perspective. Actually read it thinking, God is going to speak to me today as I read this passage, whatever that passage might be. And it can be from the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. The second suggestion, expect to hear God's voice. Ask him to help. God wants to speak to us. And as we try to listen up in 2018, if we're all making a fresh perspective, a resolution to listen for the voice of God as we read, we will hear him. And we could be shocked at what we hear. We could be encouraged. We could be chastised. The scriptures are good for all kinds of purposes. But if we approach the scriptures, reading the Bible, with a fresh perspective, then God will speak to us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now, and uh, I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the assurance that we have from your word that everything we read in the Bible is filled with your spirit, that it is alive and can give us direction that comes from you. Help us to listen for your voice as we read your word and as we pray. I ask your blessing, Lord, on each person here and in our church as we enter this new year and on our community. 
And all God's people said, Amen.